Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world. Today for Spirit in Action, we're heading over to New York State to visit with the former president of Veterans for Peace, Elliot Adams. While it's almost a national religion to stuff yourself sick at Thanksgiving time, Elliot and a number of other anti-war activists in Syracuse, New York, and elsewhere chose to fast for four days around Thanksgiving to raise concerns about unmanned aerial vehicles, commonly known as drones. Elliot Adams was joined by the current national president of Vets for Peace, Mike Ferner, and other vets and non-vets in fasting and calling attention to the dangers and downsides of the use of drones in Pakistan and elsewhere. Elliot Adams volunteered for the Army and served as an infantryman and paratrooper in Vietnam, Japan, Korea, and Alaska. He's traveled recently to Gaza, another area under siege, and familiar with the use of drones where he got to witness their effect firsthand. Right up front, I'll mention to you that you can connect with Veterans for Peace via their website, veteransforpeace.org, and there's contact info for Elliot Adams on my site, northernspiritradio.org, because he's always willing to help. Before we go to New York State to talk to Elliot Adams, let's get in the mood with a song from a collection called Peace Not War, used as a global peace movement fundraiser. The website is peace.fm, and I'll be featuring several songs from the collection on today's program. The first song is by Chumbawamba. It's Jacob's Ladder, Not in My Name. Like Simon on the mountain, says the Dharma got dumb. Hellfire and brimstone, swap for oil and guns. We're pushing up daisies We all look the same In the name of Father, maybe But not in my name On this Jacob's Ladder The only way up is down One step from disaster Two to make the higher ground Jacob's Ladder
Again, that was Chumbawamba, Jacob's Ladder, a good intro to the work of Veterans for Peace and their former national president, Elliot Adams, joining us today from upstate New York. Elliot, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Mark, it's wonderful to be here with you. You just, a couple weeks ago, completed a four-day fast. Could you tell us what that's about, why you were doing it, and how it went for you? I guess I was faced with a couple of things. One was... We were about to enter into a Thanksgiving celebration where we get together with all our family and we eat great quantities of food, a time of great warmth and security. Yet I knew that in Pakistan, a half a million people actually well over that, but we can clearly document that half a million people are refugees within their own country because of our actions there. The drones play a very, very key role in that because they are a weapon which is particularly terrorizing. So in Creature Air Base in Nevada, where the drones are currently being flown out of in Pakistan, they're having a fast there to do it. And then in Syracuse, New York, they are going to refit the 174th fighter wing. They're going to refit them. They were they did fly F-16s, and they're now going to refit them with MQ-9 Reaper drones, the bigger drones. And they're a big plane. I mean, they're twice as big as a F-16. They've got a 66-foot wingspan, and they're 30-some-odd feet long. They're a big, big bird. They're $10.5 million apiece. So at any rate, with Thanksgiving coming up, um, I felt that it was a good time to, instead of feasting with my family, to do a water-only four-day fast, and not with my family, although my wife did come and join me in Syracuse, but instead of being with my family, be with other people in a city which is going to be soon host to these drones and have them part of their life. The drones are an interesting tool. I think they're a bad choice for as, as a weapon for a couple of reasons. One is, as I alluded to, I noticed when I was in Gaza that they were a tool which particularly scared people. Uh, I would say use the term terrorized people. And I'm not quite sure what it is, but the best I can put my finger on it, it has to do with the fact that if an F-16 is coming in a bomb, you hear the F-16, you know where it is, you know, you know you're going to die or you can have time to jump in a ditch. If the tanks are coming in, you can hear the tanks, or even if, even if artillery fires, you can hear it off in a distance. Uh, if you have soldiers, you can see where they are, you know where they are, you know what's happening. With the drones, you have no idea. You know, never know when you're standing somewhere and somebody uh, halfway around the world can make a human error and launch a Hellfire missile at you and go up in smoke. So I think it's something that's particularly nerve-wracking. It is predominantly a tool of assassination, and assassinations are something which in this nation we consider illegal, uh, and they should be illegal. And they are, the drones are an ineffective tool of assassination. 
the process is is that halfway around the world we decide that somebody, no trial, no nothing, but somebody is a terrorist or involved in a process or we don't know what, but for some reason or other we decide that they should die. They never have a court trial, no habeas corpus, and then we proceed to another level of unsurety that we decide that the guy who we have a photograph of right now is the same person. And we don't have any good way of telling whether they are the same person or not, but we just decide they are and we're going to blow them up. So there's an insecurity about the process and an unsurety about the process. There's an immorality about the process, but there's also an ineffectiveness about the process. We just had the recent assassinations publicly known, but the one prior to that, which we got a lot of news coverage, and the guy was on his roof. You may remember the news coverage. Turns out we killed 12 other people at the same time. But then as time goes on, we discover actually they launched 10 missiles before that. Each time they got ahead of the wrong guy. So on average, they killed about 10 people with shot. So they killed 100, well, 99, roughly something in the order of 100 innocent civilians in order to get one guy. Well, that's not very effective from, from the killing point of view. And I just want to note that back in World War One, I, I believe six soldiers died for every civilian. And now with the drones, we're killing 100 civilians for every soldier. Then... There's the money aspect. Each time they fired uh, the Hellfire missile, that was $68,000. So in order to kill that one person and the 99 civilians, was cost us $680,000, which doesn't seem very practical to me. It seems to me if you gave me $300,000 a ticket and a rifle, I could go do it for you for half the money. So the drones are a curious weapon. There's one other thing going on simultaneously, which is that I guess Cheney, during Iraq, put it very succinctly when he said, we're making terrorists faster than we can kill them. Every one of those 99 people, we innocent civilians we killed, has a loved one, brother, sister, mother, father, children, who we just turned against us. Probably made them into terrorists, very likely. From what I've seen in, in Gaza, that's the kind of thing that does happen in other places. That when people are killed unfairly uh, or perceived unfairly by the other side, they turn against the nation that did it. So... I think that what we're doing in Pakistan is creating more terrorists than, than we can kill them. And the drone is a key part of that. So I think there's a bad tool to be using and one which we need to draw attention to. The four-day fast in Syracuse for me went very well. Mike Ferner, myself, uh, some others did a water-only fast. Some other people did, had, you know, everybody has to do what is right for them. Uh, I, had, I had a friend who, was, who joined us, another vet, who is diabetic and is taking lithium. I mean, he can't go without food, but he joined us, and I'm glad that he joined us, and I consider him part of the fast. Even though he had to eat food, he was careful to eat just enough to maintain his health. So each person has to do what is right for them, and I think it was fairly effective. So our goal was to raise the awareness in the peace movement of the problems of drones and in the public, with, and particularly Syracuse, where they're going to be stationed. We had six or seven solidarity fasts we know of in six, six or seven cities in Pennsylvania, New York, and Vermont, and that's the area we were sort of targeting when we set the fast up. I know that we had a number of TV interviews and radio interviews and paper interviews, and I know Albany did. I don't know about the other cities, but I think that you got the word out. We had a public presence. I handed out flyers in the malls. There were some really large public events we were at with signs and walking around talking to people. So I think it was pretty successful to get the word out a little bit about drones, heighten people's awareness of them.
You've said a lot of interesting things there. We should give the listeners some background about you to make sense of some of what you said. You speak rather knowledgeably about military affairs. You are a former president of Vets for Peace. Could you talk about your military service? In the course of what you just said, you said, hey, you could give me $300,000 plane ticket and such. I could go over and shoot the guy. <laughs> Were you trained as a shooter? Well, I was an infantryman. So I was trained, well, as a paratrooper infantryman, I served in Vietnam, Japan, Korea, Alaska, so that handling a rifle is not a strange thing for me. Actually, I, I grew up with firearms. They were always in the house as a kid, and I learned to shoot very young. And I still have a bunch of firearms. I don't use them much anymore, but I guess I keep them around. I believe that war is not a productive process, very destructive process, doesn't solve the problems. It does, war does one thing effectively. And that is it makes a few people very rich. So I served in Vietnam uh, as an instrument. I was in Korea, Japan. I looked at those things. I went down to Grenada after that attack. I've been in Gaza. I've been in a number of combat zones looking at them, trying to understand. And we know that war does not solve problems, does not solve disputes. We know how to solve disputes, and war doesn't do it. We know that it does not create security. We know how to create security, and war doesn't do it. So it leaves you wondering kind of what it does do one salient thing. Every single war, every single war, one thing is sure. The people lose their kids, the people pay money, and a few people get very, very rich. I was looking at the thing about Iraq, the occupation of Iraq, costing $720 million a day. And I thought, well, wait a minute, there's another way of looking at that, which is that every day we're in Iraq, $720 million gets squozen out of the blood, sweat, and tears of the American working people and put in the pocket of the filthy rich. And then I'm wondering, well, why is there a war? Well, where we come from, $720 million a, week, you know, a day, we call motivation. i got to be honest. If you offered me $720 million a day, I could figure out a reason why we should run the war one more day. I mean, you know, I could feed the world. For one more day, I could feed the world. So that seems to be the salient issue. War is about a few people getting money and power. And I've rambled far from my experience in war. But then again, my life has just been, it's been many years. It took me a long time. When I came out of Vietnam, I was convinced that there's no way that w the process of war could give birth to peace. But I was left with concerns about whether war was a unavoidable necessity. Like in those days, I questioned, well, for, for many years, I questioned whether World War II was not a justified war, whether that was a justified war, whether there's reason for it, or the American Revolution. And since then, as I've looked at them more carefully, I've recognized that the American Revolution the reality is the American Revolution was an economic revolution. We got our independence through economics, and that the guns and gunpowder portion was a relatively ineffective sidebar, which probably in reality slowed down our independence. And World War II was unnecessary to fight. There were some people who were desperate, like Roosevelt, des desperately wanted us to get into it. But if you believe that war is the last thing you should do, you should do other things first, it's very clear we could have stopped Hitler without going to war, and I'd be happy to discuss that in greater detail. I would like to note, though, in World War II, the Allied side, our side, if you add up all the civilians and the military, the death toll was 61 million. Uh, the Allied side was 11 million. And I think one has to ask, if it takes 61 million to declare a victory, Maybe we don't want any, you know, death. Maybe we don't want. Maybe we don't want any more victories. I mean, 61 million is a lot of people to die for any cause. Wow, you're saying a lot. I need to come back to you because it's kind of surprising your point of view. 
You volunteered for Vietnam. You volunteered for the military. Your perspective now it seems radically different from what it was when you beginning. Can you say what was on your mind when you signed up, and how did this radical change come about? If you look at my life back in the days of Vietnam, I or do you look at my thinking? I walk in the recruiting station. I volunteer for the army. I volunteer to be a paratrooper. I volunteer to go to Vietnam. And I know in today it's almost impossible to make the connections in my own head. But at that point, somehow or other, I thought I was saving my mother and sister from the Viet Cong, whoever they were, 10,000 miles away with an effective firing range of a few thousand feet. And I know it's hard to connect, but that's what I believed. And I have to say, and it's clear to me now, people say thank you for your service. And I, have to say, and I say to myself, I didn't serve my country. Truth of the matter is, I would have served my country much better if I had said, this war you're running, it's wrong, it's stupid, and I am not going to serve it because, because it is wrong, and I am standing right here, and you need to arrest me because I'm not going to do it. And that's the greatest thing. That's, that would have been a service to my country. I believe I'm serving my country now by trying to help people understand that war is not a useful tool. But it took me a long time. It's been a slow, gradual process. I always say I serve in Vietnam, Japan, Korea, and Alaska, which proves I'm a slow learner, which I am. It takes me, you know, I'm methodical thinking these things out. And now I recognize that war is not a useful tool. Is it mainly because historically you can see it's not good, or morality. Certainly that's one of the issues that I like to hear about, spirit and action. Why is it immoral? What makes it immoral? I mean, is it immoral to kill in self-defense as capital punishment? Is this a specific kind of killing that is immoral? These are very personal choices, and they should be individual for everybody. It's interesting to note that in our draft, in, you know, the U.S. has a draft. Uh, we aren't draft, but we have a draft board. In fact, I'm president of my regional draft board. Um, we have a drafting process. We have the laws in place, and every young man must re is required to register with a draft. But it is interesting to note that in order to be a conscientious objector under U.S. law, there's a couple of key things. You have to be opposed to war, all war, not just one war. You have to be opposed to all war. But it is perfectly legitimate to say that you would use force to protect your family from a violent attack and still be considered a conscientious objector. And I think tied into that is this notion that war is not part of the continuum of violence. It's something special. One thing I think is key when we think about war is every single war we have ever gotten into, they have lied, they have connived, they've cheated the people. They've always pulled the wool over the eyes to get the American people to go to war, which suggests that it is not part of a fallacy in human nature or a weakness in Americans. They have to be tricked to going into war. And it isn't part of the same thing as whether you are not good at dealing with your neighbor. There's something different going on there. I have two quotes that General Eisenhower gave. And one is a quote which is near and dear to my heart as a soldier because I think it's so important. And he said, you know, I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can. One who has seen its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity. And somehow that quote brings home the reality of war. We talk about heroes in war. We talk about honor in war. There's no heroes in honor in war. Those are made in Washington after the war's all over. Those are made by the people who are duped by or are trying to convince other people that war is honorable or whatever. 
that that kind of brings home where it is. He he said in the bigger sense, and this is an important one for society to look at. He said, every rifle made, every warship launched, every missile fired is, in the final analysis, a theft from those who are hungry and are not fed, from those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in war is not spending money alone. We're spending the sweat of our laborers, the genius of our scientists, and the hopes of our children. Under the dark cloud of war, it is humanity hanging on a cross of iron. And that frames war to me to a large extent. Wow. What a pacifist he must have been. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't it strike you that if people really listen to those words, that they would have to think differently about saying, yes, it's okay to add, you know, 30,000 troops to Afghanistan or to go into Iraq or, or whatever. Is there anything that you could have said from the, the wisdom you've accumulated over your life to your younger self, maybe 18 years old or whenever it was that you went into the military, that might have made it clear to your younger self that that was not a path to choose? That's an amazing question. Because that question of whether something I could say to myself, as in my younger self, now to change the path is very closely related to what we're trying to say to society. And in many ways, I think there's not. I remember early after I became clear, I, I spent quite a while as, as a, I spent many, many years as, as a closet vet. Uh, I couldn't cope with my military career. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't. I didn't want to think about it. I was working in the peace movement, but I wasn't working as a vet. But shortly after I came out, I remembered being at a Veterans Day parade and, or memorial. I don't remember which it was. And walking down the street with Veterans for Peace and seeing on the curb a little kid sitting there in shorts. The sun was coming across the street, beating down on him. He was absentmindedly waving a little American flag. And I started choking back tears. I mean, it looked, it looked just like a Norman Rockwell picture. But I started choking back tears because I recognized that that was the beginning of the making of a soldier. That was the beginning of training that young man to grow up and do what so many kids do when they're 18 or so, which is join the military. And it's a complicated process because it involves, there's so many things going on. I mean, I was talking to Cindy Sheehan and about her son, and she said, you know, I didn't want him to join the military. I thought it was wrong. I thought it wasn't right. I didn't want to risk him and have him risk his life. On the other hand, I felt like I need, as a mom, I knew he needed to sort of cut the apron strings. I knew he had to be out on his own. I had to honor his efforts to try to be himself. And she said, you know, I wish I'd, I'd just shot his knee out or something. Because uh, then he'd be alive. He'd be, still be here. Which is a poignant statement. I know that my time in the service tore my family apart. There's some very interesting things, like I never heard a word about what my parents and family went through when I was in service, because I came back and I, we weren't talking about Vietnam, we were not talking about the military, we weren't talking about anything when I was around. And it was unfair of me, I mean, I was doing what I had to do, but in many ways it was unfair of me not to let my parents voice the pain they went through. But that's all part of, you know, I'll give you a very similar thing. I remember was, as a school board member, school board president, we would be sitting there and somebody, was, a parent would come up and be complaining about a perhaps valid, but what I would perceive as a fairly minor injury, psychological injury that, those, that her daughter or son had felt from our actions. And then 
six months later, I'd see them packing them off to the military. I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute, what is going on here? The, the extreme dichotomy of, of that. But we have a culture which tells moms it's okay. I can remember when I was president of the school board, we used to compile the number of students who were going to college and going to the military as one number. Well, that's crazy. From a point of view of education, it's crazy that there's a wildly different different thing there. But that seemed appropriate at that, at that time. So we have a culture which is has many, many, many deep, deep things which aren't even directly associated with violence versus nonviolence that feed this this culture of war, this justification of war. We talk about a just war. In my opinion, a just war is just war. They're all the same. They all have some kind of a justification. You know, it's in Gaza, I came out of that struggling with that one, and I went back and started looking at the inter- international humanitarian laws, which is the Geneva Conventions, particularly the Fourth Geneva Convention, the Protocol One. It's a conglomeration of some of those codified and uncodified laws that, have, that involve war. They also involve civilians. And one of the things I suddenly realized is that, is it said right in the beginning, International humanitarian law does not try to find out who is right and who is wrong. It only tries to identify war crimes. And when you think about it, that's exactly what we do in a playground. When you go out there and find two kids fist fighting, you grab them by the college, you pull them apart and say, hey, enough of this, you're not going to do this. This isn't the appropriate way to solve a problem. Put them both in detention. You don't say, okay, who swung? Oh, he, he hit me first, but he, but, but, but he spat on me. Oh, but he called me a name. Well, it doesn't work that way. You can't come up to an answer. You can't find, when I, when I was looking at Gaza and Israel and Palestine, I'm trying to say, okay, let me look through history and see who's right. And there isn't an answer. I said, I tried to look at, okay, so who swung first? Who uh, did the worst first thing? And I realized there isn't an answer. But if you start out and say, just like international humanitarian law does, we aren't going to try to figure out who's right and who's wrong, but we are going to prosecute the war crimes you discover suddenly you've prosecuted all of the escalators. So if you take Gaza in June of last year, they'd had three months or four months of relative calm, and there were like six rockets being fired out of Gaza every month. And then there was the attack by the Israelis. A bomb that blew up and killed four people that the Israelis said were gunmen. And that made Hamas mad, and the number of rockets jumped from six to 150, 200 a month. And that made Israel say, wait, 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 you can't be firing rockets on our innocent people. So they started Operation Cast Lead, which was a week of airstrikes, followed by a couple of weeks when five armor brigades and three infantry brigades occupied Gaza. We see the escalation. But each one of those steps included a number of violations of international humanitarian law. So I see that as a way of, if we start demanding that our government put their force behind enforcing international humanitarian laws, as we did after World War I, II with the Nuremberg trials, as we did after the Serbia-Sarajevo conflict, then we would do two things. One is we would help eliminate the escalators. The other is we help eliminate the frustration, because if in civilian life, if you, somebody does something wrong and the cops come by and arrest them, there's a feeling, okay, it's out of my hands and there's some justice being done. So that is an interesting and, and, and I think viable way of ending war. But I also want to note, that's not the only way of stopping war. There are many other techniques for avoiding or resolving issues besides that. It could have been Manhattan on the day the market fell. 
and it could have been a candy store in Kandahar as well. And she might have been a Muslim, but it's kind of hard to tell when your body's ground to zero and your skin's been fried to hell. So tell me it's a war to end all war, or don't tell me nothing. Cause if this sacrifice is not for peace, it was not worth making. Seemed to me you did your best to put your hand in the hornet nest that bit you just when it hit you. There's other people hurt as much as you And grief is no excuse for what you do High flyers at the corporation's daisy-cutting edge They hold each other's hands and plummet from the window ledge And the monitors have mounted on the coffee deal which meant Five thousand farmers wondering where their livelihood just went America, my family, the whole world feels your pain And before this war is over, you'll make sure we do again Even as the tower tumbled on that firefighting team We wondered who you'd barbecue for puncturing your dream So tell me it's a war to end no war Or don't tell me nothing Cause if this sacrifice does not bring peace It was not worth making Seemed to me you did your best To put your hand in the hornet nest that bit you But it still don't hit you There's other people feel as much as you And freedom's no excuse for what you do I am not an Islamicist Religion's not my thing but they're friendlier than Christians and I like the way they sing I don't want my sisters free to burn the burger if they choose Not lie awake and calculate what weight they need to lose So tell me it's a war to end all war Or don't tell me nothing Cause if this sacrifice don't change the world It was not worth making Seems to me you did your best To put your hand in the hornet nest that bit you When will it hit you? There's other people need as much as you And greed is no excuse for what you do You're beautiful, big-hearted In many ways you're free And you're smart enough to get the world How you want it to be so it's hard for me to tell you what you shouldn't have to hear Your nation is that terrorist most human beings fear Nicaragua, El Salvador, Colombia, Vietnam Cambodia, Grenada, Chile and Afghanistan Palestinian and Iraqi and some more you never knew United States of people who deserved as much as you so tell me that you don't support this war Or don't tell me nothing Cause if this song of mine don't change your heart It was not worth singing But I believe you did your best Chasing life and happiness Never wondered, never guessed How the news had been suppressed Of a never-ending killing fest Ripped the kid from the mama's breast Shrapnel through her daddy's chest While we're all singing Glory, hallelujah I'm talking to you 
Somebody made a killing in your name So take your power back or take the blame That little musical side trip was by Seize the Day and the name of the song is United States and it's part of the Peace Not War collection used as a global peace movement fundraiser. Their website is peace.fm, and it seemed like an appropriate commentary relevant to today's Spirit and Action interview with Elliot Adams, former president of Veterans for Peace. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, host of this Northern Spirit Radio production, and you can find all of our shows and links at northernspiritradio.org. Please drop us a comment when you visit. I'm happy to hear from you and welcome your news and activism. Even though we're based here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and the program originates from WHYSLP Eau Claire, we want to listen to and raise up the concerns of all of our listeners nationwide. As I said, we're talking today with Elliot Adams, and he's one of the Vets for Peace who was fasting for four days in Syracuse, New York, over the Thanksgiving holiday to raise awareness about the immense damage, cost, and counterproductivity of drones as a weapon of war. He also recently traveled to Gaza in the Middle East, part of a delegation including some veterans for peace. Elliot, could you speak a little bit about your expertise with respect to Gaza? I'm relatively inexperienced in Gaza. I went and spent five days in Gaza. And I say inexperienced. I, uh, it was a very interesting experience, a very intense time. For five days, we had one meeting after another. There was no free time. We met with Gaza officials from the prime minister to the minister of health, the minister of education, on down through the, through the Hamas Gazan government. We met with many of the NGOs. We met with student groups. We met with um, business groups. We met with things like the Women's Empowerment Program. We went and visited people in, who were refugees and people who were not refugees and cultural people. So we did a lot. Met a lot of people and, and I think learned uh, one awful lot about Gaza. But I say not because I came home and started looking at the history, trying to understand there's so much I didn't understand. On the other hand, I do look at, as I do so many things, through the eyes of war and conflict and, and ways of resolving these issues that are effective. And what is going on in Gaza is so wrong and so deeply wrong on a humanitarian level that it is just terribly upsetting for the people who go there. Many of our members who went on a delegation just had to come up and kind of curl up in a ball for a week after they got back just to cope with, with how unjust it is on a humanitarian level, and more so than what I've seen in most combat zones. So that was a, a, a dramatic experience, but it also helped me get a deeper understanding of war and conflict and alternative approaches to dealing with it. And we have to start talking about it. A lieutenant colonel used to tell me, Elliot, if the only tool you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like nails. And you look at that today, and you look at what's happening in Pakistan and, and Afghanistan, 57% of our budget is going into the military, Defense Department, the VA, et cetera, et cetera. That leaves the other 12 or so departments fighting over the scraps. So if you look at it and you want to, if you want to build a school anywhere, whether it be here or, or in, in Afghanistan, the only people who have the money to do it is the Army or the military. If you want to distribute aid, the only people who have the money to do it is the military. That's the only place we're putting the money. So we keep asking the military to do jobs that would normally be done by somebody else. So we talk about, in Afghanistan, we, we do talk about nation-building. That's USAID's job. 
they've been doing it ever since they're that's what they're created for. But you can't use them in Afghanistan because the military has all the money. And even if you didn't want to use, I mean, you can even go to a step further, which is there's a dozen UN agencies which do that kind of work. You know, who feed the refugees, who teach education, build educational systems, who do health care, who do all those things we're trying to do. But we're trying to do them in the military. So if you step back and say, okay, wait a minute, before I assign a job to various agencies, what agencies do these things? So what does the military do? Well, basically, the military is trained, equipped, and experienced at blowing stuff up. Now, there's a more sophisticated analysis. They blow things up that are a long ways away. They blow things up that are really hard to get to. They blow things up that are really hard to blow them up. But they don't know how to. They, they aren't designed, equipped, or prepared to nation-build. They aren't designed, equipped, or prepared to make friends. They aren't designed, equipped, or prepared to deliver aid. That's not what they're good for. We have other agencies for that. But just because we have chosen to put so much money into it, that's the tool we have to use. And we also, in the process, whenever we see a conflict, suddenly we say, well, what about the military? Rather than saying, well, what about diplomacy? Or what's the source of this? Or what about the courts? What about, the U- what about international courts? What about defusing the problem by eliminating the escalators through the courts or through some other means? So we've gotten ourselves sucked into a process that is ineffective, but because we've gotten our mindset set on it, we keep doing it. It's like if you had a field that you could walk across, but you were convinced you had to drive across, you might spend the whole time with your vehicle stuck in the mud, and if you just gotten out of your vehicle and walked, you could have been there and back. But instead, you're in the mindset that you have to take a vehicle across there, so you spend the whole time struggling trying to get it to the mud. Yeah, and we're in some pretty big mud. What would you advocate with respect to Iraq or Afghanistan, the, the stuff that we're doing across the border into Pakistan right now? Obama's not going the right direction, is he? No, no. You know, when I was in Vietnam, when there were about 20,000 of us soldiers, KIAs, and dead, we now know the White House was talking about an unwinnable war. And they worked on an exit strategy until 59,000 of us were dead. And in the end, they never came up with an exit strategy. And in the end, the U.S. citizens and the U.S. military forced them out. It's worth heralding that day. That was a time, that was probably the first time in the, world, in the history of the world when the citizens forced the government to stop a war the government wanted to keep fighting. The first presidential candidate I ever worked for was McGovern. And he, he won over my heart. They said to him, look, McGovern, this is... Is Vietnam's really complicated, and we all agree, we all agree that we shouldn't have gone in, and there's a bad war. But getting out's really complicated, because you know if you pull out too quickly, you'll empower the enemy, and they'll come over and take over the world. If you pull out too precipitously, Vietnam will break into a civil war. If you pull out without a victory, then you will not be honoring the soldiers who have died there. We have invested too much in it. Oh, does this sound like what they say after in Iraq? Doesn't this sound exactly what they're saying in Afghanistan? It's always the same story. But my point being is that, so, Mr. McGovern, uh, how would you get out of Vietnam? He said, I think we could probably do it with ships and planes. Now, that might be simplistic, but it also isn't simplistic. You don't get out of a place by putting in more soldiers. The way you get out of a place is by loading up ships and planes and bringing them home. If you aren't putting boots on the boats and planes, you're not coming home. As far as some of those issues, as far as the Civil War, there will be a Civil War. There's no question. When a force comes in and supports the puppet government, when they leave, there will be a change of power. 
But that's going to happen if we do it this week or if we do it six years from now. And indeed, history has always shown it's never as bad as we predict it's going to be. As far as the domino theory, it hasn't proven, didn't prove true to be Vietnam, it hasn't proved true to be true in Iraq, didn't prove to be true anywhere else. Why are we talking about something which just, just had a history of not being true? As far as honoring the soldiers, my experience is the one way you can honor soldiers and make their death worthwhile is by recognizing that that war is stupid and that killing young men for a stupid war is even stupider and that the American people are complicit in allowing wars to happen because they haven't educated themselves enough to understand that if you ask the generals, they will always have a military solution that always costs lives. It's like going to a hospital. If you go to a hospital and you go see a surgeon, he's going to find a surgical solution to, to whatever your problem is. Well, he's going to find a surgical effort to try to solve it. If you go to an internal med guy, he's going to see an potential internal med solution to it. If you, because that's a specialty. When you're in a deep specialty, that's where you see solutions. So if you ask the military for what a solution is going to be, they're not going to say give the people aid, make friends with them, and help them out. They're going to say blow something up because that's what they do. And that's what they've been saying, and that's the course we've taken. You know, Elliot, you are the past president of the National Organization of Veterans for Peace. How many Veterans for Peace are there? What's their distribution? Are there a number of them coming in from the Afghanistan and Iraq wars? How's the breakdown, and how many are we talking about nationwide? Veterans for Peace is a national organization. It was created uh, some 25 years ago. Oh, no. It was incorporated some 25 years ago. Obviously, every war produces Veterans for Peace, but it didn't get incorporated for a while. We have members that go back to, well, our oldest members are going to be Abraham Lincoln Brigade, people who went over during the Spanish Revolution to fight fascism over there. And we have vets from every single war and the periods of no war, up including Iraq and Afghanistan. The vast majority are Vietnam vets because there's more Vietnam vets. So there's a lot of us. And the other thing, too, is that part of our, our statement of purpose is basically says that we, having duly served in other nations, having served the nation in war, do now see our commitment to a, a greater deed, that of, of world peace. And to do that, we have uh, like five points to uh, increase uh, public awareness of war, to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in other nations' to internal affairs, to end the arms race and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, and to abolish war as a tool of national policy. And then we also say to do that, uh, we will work on violently. Many vets coming back from Afghanistan are in a similar position that I was coming back from Vietnam, which is that I knew Vietnam, I knew Vietnam was wrong, but I, I wasn't ready to say to work to abolish all war. So I think it's a, it's a maturing process for vets to first see that the war they're involved in is wrong, and then there's another step in maturing that takes place to see that, that you are willing to work against all war. So we have less Iraq vets, but we certainly have a fair share. We've got about 8,000 members overall. They're spread all over the country, 120, 130 chapters. We do not have any overseas chapters by policy. Could you say a little bit more about the vets from the current wars that we're in? I guess maybe there's a shell shock time afterwards where you have to realize that what you were part of is something you want to work against. You didn't go right into anti-war work uh, when you got out of the military, did you? 
The issue about what you do when you come back from war is an interesting one. My, personally, I was a closet vet for 30 years. I could not cope with it. I just couldn't psychologically. And, and, and I can remember even at the end of those 30 years when I was in peace movements and people wanted my veteranship, and I felt that that was just their own, own little self-centeredness or something or other. I just I was not prepared for that. So typically... It's a very it's it's a bitter process. I mean, we talk about the number of wounded. So in, in Vietnam, there were uh, fifty nine thousand KIAs killed in action. On the other hand, twice that many committed suicide when they came home. And we deal with our experience of war a lot of ways. The classic ways are self medication with alcohol, and they're usually brushed off as alcoholics. Self medication with drugs, and they're usually brushed off as addicts. Abuse of our loved ones, and I say abuse of our loved ones because it is the loved ones that we're like, likely to abuse, and it's part of that process, and suicide. Suicide's a really, really interesting one because the suicides after World War II were hidden. The suicides after Korea was hidden. We didn't start talking about suicides of vets when they come home until Vietnam. It was a Vietnam vet who finally forced the government to acknowledge PTSD and, and name it as a psychological trauma. It was the Vietnam vets who said, hey, wait a minute, there is something going on here in terms of suicide. This is not just a hocus-pocus. And it wasn't until the uh, Iraq War that we got a study, and CBS did a study, and they found that, huh, Iraq vets are committing suicide about twice as fast as they're dying in Iraq. Same number. And interestingly enough, the VA came out and said, oh, no, 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 that wasn't, it was, isn't true. And then a year later, we find an internal email where the director of the VA is saying, gee, you know, we have these numbers which really support the CBS study, and we have to decide what to do with them because they may leak out, and maybe we better release them because they may leak out in the end anyway. So it's clear that the VA was actually hiding the suicide numbers. Now, this is a long way from, from what happens to people coming home, but it's a very, very important part because the returning vets are going through an incredible kind of trauma. It's a hell of an experience going through war. And even harder if you are willing to admit what you were involved in was not heroic, it was wrong. Well, there may be another thing going on there, too. You know, I like to think about if a person runs into a burning building to save a child, are they a hero? Well, what happens if the person who runs in is the arson who set the fire? What if they set the fire and didn't know there was a child in there and then ran in to save a child? Would they be a hero? Well, what if they knew the child was in there and changed their mind? I mean, this issue of a person going to a wrong war, does that mean they're not, that they're not heroic? Does that mean that they didn't try to do what was right? I don't think so. It's a complicated mess. But coming out of war is a long period of trying to, trying to find a way to look at it, even deal with it. As I say, I was a closet vet for 30 years. I just couldn't cope with it. I just couldn't think about it. I couldn't deal with it. But for many vets, it isn't even that. It isn't the question whether they're dealing with it, the experience of dealing with that. We have an old saying, which is that, that no one ever comes from home from war. And it's a little double entendre, double play of words, because on the one hand, the person who goes is never the person who comes back. They're scarred for life. But the other thing, too, is the person who comes back never comes back, because they always drag that damn war back with them. And they spend the rest of their life trying to keep it in the closet, trying to, uh, my image is you take that sucker and you get it in the closet, you get the door 
closed and locked and you stand there the rest of your life with your feet firmly planted on the floor, keeping that door shut, hoping it won't creep out from underneath. So you bring that war back and it just keeps and it keeps uh, with you and, and every every time it turns dark, every night that that war keeps coming back to you and you keep trying to cope with the experience. The vets coming home I mean I can't tell you how many how much time I have spent just with vets come uh, Iraq vets or older vets, but Iraq vets who were trying to make it through till tomorrow morning. One more day. Just holding on for one more day. And tied in with this is an old saying too, which is new wars scratch open the old wounds and old vets. So the Vietnam vets were committing suicide when they came back. Uh, they tapered off. But when we invaded Iraq, they started committing suicide again. I remember talking to a World War II vet who went for his first therapy for PTSD after we went into, into Iraq. Because it ripped open those old wounds, opened that closet door, that crap came tumbling out all over him, and he, and he was trying to cope with it. In general, what's the number? There was a number of VA number of all vets from World War II that they could uh, on to not including Iraq that they could identify, and they found that all vets, combat vets and non-combat vets, everybody, commit suicide 2.1 something or other times more often, adjusted for, for all socioeconomic indicators, than non-vets. And probably almost all of those suicides are the combat vets. So there's two things going on here. One is the experience of the war has, uh, has on people, and the other is the experience of, of trying to make sense of it on your, own, on your own terms while you're coping with all this craziness of your life where you're just trying to literally, you know, with vets, it's literally, can you make it through to tomorrow morning? Never mind life. We don't talk about that. Can I help you make it through till tomorrow morning? And many vets don't. Oh, it's so much carnage that is involved in the war. Not just during the war, not just civilian, not just the military. It's, it just trickles down through our entire society. I think we're really fortunate that you, Elliot, have taken up the effort of getting out there, having been a volunteer yourself in the military, getting the word out there about what war really is your first experience, your experience with other vets. I'm thankful for the work that you're doing. I'm thankful for the fast you did over Thanksgiving. And I just want to support you forward in your work. How can we do that? How can we support Vets for Peace? People can help us by going to our website, which talks something about, about uh, us and the war, which is uh, www.veteransforpeace.org. They can support us financially. They can also support us by being out there talking to any vets they know, suggesting us to us, talking about us, helping people be aware that as an organization and as a resource, we exist to help the nation move away from the steel grasp that war has upon us. Do you have a speaker's bureau or something like that so that if you had a civics class, wanted to invite in one of the members of Vets for Peace, they'd do that? We don't have an official speaker's bureau, but if you contact our national office, then they can help you identify people. If you can't get to them, you're always welcome to call me and I'll see what I can do. Either identifying people or trying to get out there myself who can come see you. Because part of our role is talking to people to help them understand one of the ways war survives is because there's no inspectors, there's nobody there, people can't get there to see what's actually happening. I've always said if, if the American people could see war, I don't mean a bad picture of it. I, I mean if they could just see what war was, they would be repelled by it and they would stop it. 
Thank you again, Elliot, for all of your work. Is it all right if I put a link for you on my website on northernspiritradio.org? Yep. What link should I put up there for you? You can get a hold of me through my phone number, which is 518-441-2697, or you can contact me through my email, which is Elliot Adams, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-A-D-A-M-S, at juno.com. I've got it, and I'll put that on my website, Elliot. Again, thanks so much for your witness through the fast, for your work with Vets for Peace, and your ongoing dedication to helping the world find a better and less stupid alternative that war is. Thanks again. Mark, thank you very much for your work getting out these words. Your work is a very is very important work. We're in a world where the uh, established media is part of the establishment and is selling goods which are not good for the American people. Thanks again, Elliot. That was Elliot Adams, recent president of the National Veterans for Peace Organization and a participant in the four-day fast in Syracuse, New York, calling attention to the many problems in the use of drones by our military. We'll close off this edition of Spirit in Action with one more song from the Peace Not War collection. It's a global peace movement fundraiser. Their website is peace.fm. Here's John Lester in his song, Out of the Clear Blue Sky. When I was a young man, so many troubles seemed to come my way. I didn't see that I sowed the seeds of my anger. They grew a little every day. Always a battle for my ways and always someone else to blame. So many enemies, but never did I wonder from whence they came. I never stopped to look inside. To see if I held the reasons why The world was coming at me From out of the clear blue sky The clear blue sky Now comes a time When my country's also come of age A hell hit the homeland and Everyone is rightful filled with rage The president's pointing his finger And from the pulpit I heard him say We're one nation under God and by God We're gonna get them back one day With no admission to reasons why Put all the blame on another side And said the evil one came at us From out of the clear blue sky The clear blue sky Call me a traitor, say I'm a coward, not a patriot Well, I know we had to strike back don't think we planned the hardest battle yet How many fights for freedom Will we wage while the peace is denied And is that peace just a prayer we make on Sundays And hope that God will bless it on us From out of the clear blue sky The clear blue sky From out of the clear
Listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. Oh,